Well, I believe that deep down in the heart of every person is a desire for a meaningful and satisfying relationship. You agree with that? Every person, young or old, looks for that connection, something that provides some, something that provides them, or someone who provides them the care and, and understanding. In, in the first book of the Bible in, in Genesis, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And he wasn't talking about just the marriage relationship. There's something beyond human relationship. There is something in our soul that longs for a relationship with the eternal God. Someone who will listen to us and love us and communicate with us, share the great joys of life. There are times when the questions are too many and the burdens are too heavy and the fears are too great and we need someone to walk with us through the inescapable challenges of life. Now today, in our culture, a lot of people have tried to find a, a meaningful relationship in technology, right? Technology seems to have provided a remedy for many. Our connections have become digital. And so we have, uh, we have Facebook friends we'll never meet. And we have Instagram followers we'll never know. And in this world of technology, we, uh, we can put always our best self forward, Right? So how many of you have ever taken a selfie? All right, raise your hands high. Don't be ashamed. Okay, here's a real question. How many of you have taken a selfie and then you didn't like it, so before you posted it, you took another selfie? Okay. Well, you know there's an art. There's an art to taking a selfie. So I wanted to shoot up... A, a few of these uh, uh, pictures to, to show you how you, you can do a good selfie. Here's the first one. You got to have a cool look. Check this one out. I mean, <laughs> something with the lips, right? Kind of a half pucker type thing. It's got to be a cool look. And you can't just have a cool look, but you got to be in a cool place. You got to take a selfie of a place. Check the next, this next one. You got to have a selfie of a place where people say, man, I want to go there. I am envious of that person. Um, here's one taken right off of our family thread. This is a college thing. I, I don't know. I don't get this, but go ahead. Uh, the next one, our daughter. I just quit asking why uh, after a while. <laughs> then animals. Animals are getting in to this. Here's one of two animals that are, are, are into selfies. <laughs> so, you know, I've been thinking, you know, shoot, if everyone else is doing it, why not me? Why can't I do this? And so yesterday, I, I took a selfie of myself I wanted, wanted to show you. It's just a, it's just a little shot I took yesterday. See. Uh, <laughs> A little embarrassing, but, you know, selfies will make you do things you, know, don't, you won't normally do. I mean, I would never take a picture without my shirt on normally like that. <laughs> so so in, this, in this world of technology, we're, we're, using, we're using these things, the social media, to meet a, a, a desperate need. And experts say it's not working. 
Experts are now saying that anxiety and depression among our teens are on the rise. And they're saying that among our teens, and I would say older than that and even adults, there becomes a blur between real life and digital life. Real life and digital life. See, we're looking for this relationship, but it never works unless it's with the right person. Janice Whitlock, director of Cornell's research program on self-injury and recovery, says this, if you wanted to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we've done it. Our children are in a cauldron of stimulus they can't get away from or don't want to get away from or don't know how to get away from. In our society, we frame our world to look just perfectly, just the way we want it to look. But we know that's not the real world. One parent wrote this, I see everyone putting up posts about their family. They look so happy and everyone's smiling. Everyone's so perfect and rosy. I feel kind of less than. Sherry Sherry Turkle, uh, an MIT professor, written a great book, uh, written a book called Alone Together. I love the title, Alone Together. How many times have you seen families together? but all on their phone, alone together. Listen to what she says. Technology purposes itself as the architect of our intimacies. It suggests substitutes to put the real on the run. Technology is seductive when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities, and it turns out we are very vulnerable indeed. We are lonely. Listen to what she says. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered together. We'd rather text than talk. Way too true, isn't it? We'd rather text than talk. To all of you here today looking for a real relationship, to all of you here looking for a lasting connection, For all of you here looking for that one to meet the crying need of your heart, to finally give you the significance and security and acceptance that you long for, I want to introduce you to the one whose resurrection we celebrate today. Not just during the Easter season, by the way, but we celebrate this every day of our lives. His name is Jesus, and he desires. He came to this earth so you could have an everlasting relationship with the Heavenly Father. I want us to look today at a passage of Scripture tucked away in the book of Hebrews, a book we've been studying on weekends. And this was written to a people long before computers and long before iPhones and long before selfies and long before cars that parallel parked themselves. What is up with that, by the way, anyway? These people did not have all the technology, but they had the same questions and they had the same issues that we deal with today. I want to read through these three verses, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, 15, and 16. I want us to see the work of Jesus Christ, what he does in in verse 14. I want to see the power of Christ in verse 15. And I want us to, to, to hear the invitation that is given in verse 16. By the way, these are, this is a passage of scripture that I believe every Christian should have memorized. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll go through each one. Since then, Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast 
our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Then let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, let's just go through these verses one at a time. Here's the first one, looking at the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's think about what the writer is talking about. What confession is he talking about? What proclamation is he talking about that we're supposed to hold fast to, that we're supposed to grasp and not let go? This confession is nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And let's make sure we understand this. The good news of Christ, the confession, is so simple a child can understand it and accept it, and so powerful that it, it, it changes our eternity. Now, this confession begins with a truth that offends some people. And the truth is from Scripture that every one of us is a sinner. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our actions, we're a sinner. We were born that way, original sin. That happened back in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and that sin separated us from God there. Like a poison at the beginning of the stream contaminates the entire stream, so sin at the beginning of humanity has contaminated the stream of humanity. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Our sin, the Bible says, has separated us from God. So man is over here, and God is over here. We are separated from God. The Bible says not only are we sinners, but the penalty of our sin is death. And when you think of death in Scripture, don't think of just the still body. Think of separation. We are eternal souls. We're going to live forever, either in heaven or hell, right? And so when we die, our soul is separated from our body. Spiritually speaking, we are separated from God, spiritual death. Now, man, on his own, on our own, we, we try to do things to get to God, right? So we do religious stuff. We do, uh, we do baptisms, either infant or adult. And by the way, neither of those are going to place you into a relationship with the living God. We do confirmations. We do church membership. We do good works. We are a good citizen. We do all those things. But the Bible is clear that our sin separates us from God, and our, our, our efforts all, far, all fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So matter, no matter what you try, no matter how good you are, you cannot have a relationship with the living God. So since man can't get to God, God came to man. And he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who bridges the gap between man, sinful man, and a holy God. Now, in the Old Testament, before Christ came, God established a system. And he said, I'm going to, the wages of sin is death, but what I'm going to do, because I love you and I care for you, I'm going to give, I'm going to provide 
a substitute. And so in the Old Testament, there was animal uh, sacrifice, right? An animal died on your behalf. And the person in charge of all this was the high priest. And on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go and he would make sacrifice in the holiest place of the temple for the worshipers. He was the high priest. He was the one who represented that system. The, the, the writer here says, we have not just a high priest, but we have a great high priest. We have one who didn't pass just into a temple, the Holy of Holies, but we have one who has passed into the heavens to the very throne of God. He has passed in the heavens and he carries our sin on his shoulders. Every lie told, every object coveted, every murder committed, every wrong thought, every wrong intention, every sin, Jesus bore on his body on the cross and he passed through the heavens and there he didn't bring a sacrifice to God. He himself was the sacrifice. Now he can do that because the writer explains he is Jesus, that's his human name, fully man, and he is the son of God. Son of means equal to. He is fully God, fully man. Only one person can do that. Muhammad can't do that. Buddha can't do that. Some self-actualization can't do that. So someone would say, look, time out. I get what Jesus did. I get the whole Easter thing, but, but surely... If you're just sincere, I mean, if you're just sincere about getting to God, then surely at the end of the day, you know, he'll accept everyone. Universalism. He'll just accept. Maybe there's some really bad people that he won't. But, you know, for the most people, he just accept them. The Bible says there's only one way to have a relationship with God. And that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus clearly said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but through me. And why is that? Why is Jesus it? Because he is fully man, so he represents us on the cross. He dies in our place. He is fully God and takes on, dies a sinless death and takes on the wrath of God. It is at the cross where grace and justice intersect. And it's there that Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. We're a sinner. We can't get to God on our own. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus came and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And there's one thing left, and that is trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the only way we can have a relationship with the living God. Here at the Bible Chapel, we like to use this acronym for what it means to have saving faith, what it means to trust in Christ. We use the acronym CANT with, spelled with a K. The K is knowledge. We know all about Easter, right? We know about Jesus. We know that he came. We come and sing the songs. We got that down. We have the knowledge of who Jesus is. We don't have to believe it, but we have the knowledge. Second part is we got the knowledge and we agree to it. We agree that Jesus came we agree that he died on the cross. We agree that if we trust in him, we could have eternal life. We agree to all those things. Not only we know it, but we agree it. We agree to it. The end is need. I believe there is a time in your life when God says, you need me. What you're pursuing is futile. You are not ever going to fill this void in your heart, this God-shaped void in your heart with anything other than me. 
and there's a need. Sometimes it's a great success. And so you have this great success in your life and this is the thing you dream for. This is the thing you work for and you get there and you feel just as empty as the day before. Sometimes it's a great failure or tragedy and you realize that, man, I am vulnerable. I, am, I have no control over my life. Whatever it is in your life, there's a need. And then there's this last thing. Knowledge, I know it. I agree to it. I need God. But there's this last thing, trust. I trust in Jesus alone. And that's where a lot of people have, have some problems because when you trust in Jesus, it means you quit trusting in yourself. You quit being your own God. You understand that Jesus did for you what you can't do for yourself, and you trust in him alone. You turn your life over to him. There's forgiveness of sins when you do that. You realize that you're a sinner. You are, you are asking him to turn your life around. There's a, a word we use called repentance. It means I, I'm not happy with the way I'm going. I'm going, a, I'm going the wrong direction. By the way, if you're, if you're not a believer and you think you're going the, wrong, the right direction, then you don't need Christ, right? You're headed the wrong direction. But until you realize that and turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone, then that void in your heart cannot be filled. Now, when you do that, we'll go back to that in a second. When you do that, the writer of the Hebrews says, it's a game changer. Everything changes. Look at, verse, look at verse 15. For we don't have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the writer telling us? The power of Christ, right? We have now someone who will walk with us. We have someone who will fill the void in our heart. We have someone who is now the answer to that relationship question. Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weakness, he is able to feel just like we feel, whatever you're going through. You know, there are some people who can sympathize with you. You've gone through a tough time. They've gone through that tough time. They can sympathize with you. But Jesus is the only one who can sympathize with everything you have going on in your life. He's been there. He sympathized with our weakness. That word, it's a broad word. It means, it means sickness, disease, physical weakness. You see, this verse tells us whatever you are going through, Jesus understands. He was tempted every way as we are. Every way. And yet, without sin. And you say, well, maybe, maybe I got to think about that. Because if he's God, and if he didn't sin then he doesn't understand my temptation. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. He doesn't understand the pressure I'm feeling to give in. He doesn't, he doesn't understand the pull of the sin that's going on in my life. All right, let me try to illustrate this. How many of you have ever been to a tractor pull? Tractor pull? How many of you have been to one, but you don't want to raise your hand and tell anyone? <laughs> You've been to one. All right, a couple of you. All right, well, a tractor pull is not two tractors pulling against each other. There's this cool thing that happens at a tractor pull. Now, Lionel, I love you think this is something down south, but I want to show you a tractor pull from up north in New York, okay? Check this out. Tractor pull. Ready? You'll see what I mean. She can breathe. 
Okay, that's pretty cool, right? How many of you now have tractor pull on your bucket list? All right, think about this. Let's just say that you, instead of that sled behind the tractor, you could hook yourself up to that tractor. And you're harnessed to it, and you're standing your ground, and you're giving it everything you got, and that tractor revs its engine, and the smoke comes out, and it takes off. How long do you think it would be before that tractor pulled you over? Like maybe a a nanosecond, right? Let's just say you could handle it for like five seconds. For five seconds, you could hold your ground, and that tractor could not move you one inch. You would at least feel some of its power. But let's say you could handle it. You could dig in. You could hold your ground, and that tractor giving everything it had, every bit of power, could not pull you over. Only then would you experience the full force of the power of that tractor, right? That's what Jesus did when it came to sin, temptation. Jesus took on temptation and never gave in. You see, when when we're tempted, we either get out of that situation or we give in, right? Two things happen. Get out of the situation, give in, but Jesus held his ground. He never gave in. He's the only one who who felt the full force of temptation. So when it says Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin, the writer is saying he understands whatever you're going through to its fullest force. He understands it even more than you do. How many of you are tired? I talk to more people today and they say, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm just tired all the time. Maybe it's because you got, you're burning the candle at both ends in your profession. Maybe it's because you got young kids and they're keeping you up all night. Maybe it's, it's both of those things and you have aging parents you're trying to figure out what to do with. There's, there's this is mental and emotional exhaustion. I want to tell you, Jesus understands. After he was baptized, he went into the desert and fasted for 40 days, almost six weeks without food. He knows what it's like to feel physically weak. He understands what you're going through when you're tired. How many of you understand the pressures of the business world, right? You get it. You're in a cutthroat environment, and you are tempted to give in. You're tempted to cut corners. Other people are, and they're getting the deals, and they're getting the jobs, and you're tempted to cut corners, The pressure to give in to sin. Jesus understands that. After six weeks of fasting, Satan came at him in the desert full throttle with alluring temptations. And Jesus never gave in. He never gave his ground. He understands what you're going through when you're pressured to sin. How many of you are dreading tomorrow? You're saying, man, Easter's great. But tomorrow the treatments begin. Tomorrow, the surgery is scheduled. Tomorrow, I learn the results 
And some of you may be facing death itself. Jesus understands. Before going through the pain of the cross in the garden, he dreaded, he dreaded the cross so much. Think about this. He dreaded the cross so much, he sweat drops of blood. A condition, the medical society says, the doctors say, characterized by sweating of blood is said to occur when a person is facing death or other highly stressful events. The capillaries break and the blood comes out, the sweat pours. Jesus understands. How many of you have ever experienced or are experienced unanswered prayer? You're praying for something and you're praying for something and it's not happening or you're praying for something and it didn't happen the way you wanted to. Jesus understands that. Before he went to the cross, he prayed that God would spare him from going to the cross. God, if there's any, Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. And yet he said what? Not my will, but your will be done. Ever been rejected? Jesus understands. Ever experienced ridicule? Jesus understands. Ever experienced physical pain? Jesus understands that. The death of crucifixion was so painful that there wasn't a word to describe the pain, so they had to make up a word just for crucifixion. The word was, in Greek, out of the cross. It's the English word excruciating. Jesus understands physical pain. You ever been alone? Jesus hung on the cross, bore our sins in his body on the cross, and cried out as God the Father's wrath poured on him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that for us. He understands what it is to be alone. You see, whatever you're going through, I can promise you this, not me, but God's word, Jesus understands. And here's the invitation. Look at verse 16. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, because he has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, the writer says, let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, that free gift that God gives us, that gift of salvation, that strength that he gives us, everything we need, the gift of the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love the word help. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is translated uh, with a Greek word that means physician. He comes to our aid. He is our remedy. He gives us just what we need for the situation we're in. You see, the day you can come to the throne of grace. Jesus is there waiting for you. He's the relationship that you've been looking for all along. A couple things and we're done. The first question is this. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your personal Savior? Are you certain, no doubt, that if you died right now, you would transition from this world to heaven itself. You can know that with certainty. And on this Easter morning, our prayer is that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that one who fills that hole in your heart, and and let's face it, don't kid yourself. If you're honest with yourself, 
you know without Christ there's a hole there. Trying to fill it up with a lot of other stuff. But only Jesus can fill the void in your heart. Today we ask you, we beg you, we plead with you to trust in Christ. If you're here today and you're a believer but you're distant from God, today's the day. Easter weekend, 2017, to come back and get things right. Approach the throne of grace with confidence because he will give you everything you need to do what he's calling you to do. Charles Murphy used to walk home through uh, Central Park in New York to his 19-room townhouse. Used to walk from work there for dinner with his wife and his three children. And often he would walk with his boss, hedge fund billionaire, John, billionaire John Paulson. And they would talk along the way. Charles Murphy was an imposing figure, six foot six. 56 years old, he had a net worth of tens of millions of dollars. His intellect was amazing. At 16 years of age, he entered Harvard and later earned his law and business degrees from Harvard and then later from MIT, Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology. Amazing man as far as the world measures success. Here's what the Wall Street Journal said. Mr. Murphy was blessed with a commanding presence and boundless ambition, yet his concerns over maintaining his life had created for himself, his wife, Annabella, and their three children uh, that, that consumed him. His concerns over maintaining the life he had created for himself consumed him. Think about that. Some of you are here today. The life you've created for yourself apart from God is consuming you. The very qualities, Wall Street Journal, I'm still quoting from that. The, the very qualities that helped him build a fortune were no match for his fear of losing it. So on March the 27th, he got up and had breakfast with his family. He put on his nicest suit and he put on a crisp shirt. He looked so nice that the nanny even mentioned, man, you look great today. And he said, I feel great. And after breakfast, he walked out the door. He spent the morning at work. And in the afternoon, he checked into a hotel in New York City and jumped from the 24th floor. You see, when you try to fill your heart with the stuff of this world, with the relationships of this world, real or digital, when you try to fill your heart with possessions and positions and all the prominence that the world says, man, this is what you shoot for, you will always be disappointed. Any relationship, any search apart from Christ is spiritual suicide. And today we invite you to a relationship with the living God. A relationship that if you don't know Christ, he is there with his arms wide open waiting for you to come. A relationship for some of you who know Christ, but you're far away. Today is a day to come back home. Kirk Voller is going to come and lead us in a hymn.
or a song. I'm going to ask you to stand and sing with us. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. And if you need to pray about anything, anything going on in your life, then we're going to have pastors and elders to come down, our staff to come down, and they'd love to pray with you today. So let's stand together as Kirk leads us in this song. Father, be with us as we sing these words. Let these be our prayer to you. We need you and you alone. And if there's anything else standing in the way, if there's anything else competing with you, Father, we pray that we would put it down today and we would trust and follow you and you alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.